You're listening to the Topco Business Unusual Podcast. Now, the Business Unusual Podcast. Learn from the greatest minds in business today. Interviews hosted by Ralph Fletcher. Learn how to improve business, get tips from industry leaders, and be motivated by real-life experience. Topco. Business Unusual. So welcome to Topco Media's uh, Business Unusual podcast. Um, today we have the pleasure, and I, well, I think we're so excited, to have Alice McQuenna, who's the country director for Google South Africa, with us. Welcome, Alistair. How, Thank how are you, you doing? Thank you. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to be to be with you this morning. Um, I'm fine. It's just, uh, yeah, we're all trying to make sense of the world that's, um, you know, that's that's proving to be uh, properly disrupted. Uh, I think every every day I think about, you know, what a VUCA world we're living in. Um, it's in every conversation, and um, and yeah, but we we here to make the most of it. And I suppose being at Google, you're sort of the front runners for this disruption because you've been <laughs> disrupting industries for, for years so i think we're, we're really excited but i mean just to talk about you a little bit and and your background and what got you here um it's such an impressive and interesting story um and and i mean your pursuit of education it's funny because i think of i think of google and i think of this evolving you know, company that's constantly learning and adapting. And, and I look at your career and where you've morphed and, and it seems like a parallel in many ways. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's quite an interesting story and um, I have to start at the beginning. So I am a Pretoria boy. I grew up in Harankua, just outside Pretoria. Uh, my dad, uh, after his teaching career, got into professional football, playing for Kaiser Chiefs. After that, he got into business. So he was quite an entrepreneur, and that was the first kind of exposure into business, if you like. And then my mom, on the other hand, is an academic. She's a retired nursing professor. Um, she basically worked all her life at Medunsa, the medical university. And there we were surrounded by all these academics, you know, people who would not be satisfied with just one area of medical speciality. They would, like, specialize in three different areas. So, so we got used to just seeing people just graft and study and just like pursue knowledge and all of that stuff. So that, that was kind of my introduction to seeking knowledge. And um, my, my, my parents kind of thought that my older brother and I would be a lawyer and a doctor. Um, you know, so I watched a lot of early law. My brother watched a lot of medical stuff like Doogie Hauser. He became a doctor. I went and studied law um, as well as marketing. But um, I think the other influence in my life was I went to a boarding school in Mafeking, um, and there we had a university, University of, of uh, Bob, it was right next door to our school. And even there, there were so many academics, professors, I mean, the vice chancellor's kids went to our school. So there was never a shortage of inspiration. In fact, my first memory of a graduation party was attending my grandfather's graduation party. So, you know, you're surrounded by all these teachers and all these people that are educated. It's just no way that you would not, uh, you know, uh, follow, 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 um, sort of in their footsteps. So that's kind of how I ended up doing what I do. What an interesting story! And you never thought of going into the sports arena and following your father's footsteps as a as a. You know, they say these skip a generation. <laughs> so I did. <laughs> I did play soccer 
at school I played for Rose also, but um, yeah, my son is a much better soccer player than me. But also I think when my dad played for, for soccer, I mean, played for Chiefs in the 70s, soccer wasn't really a lucrative career, you know? Um, and he kind of sat us down and said, listen, it's fine. If you want to play professional football, do that, but also have a degree, have a qualification to kind of fall back on. Um, and then, you know, as luck would have it, went to varsity, got my qualifications, got into a really good job at Unilever, and it's been 20, 24 years now, I haven't looked back, so yeah. But you're constantly studying, I mean, you're still studying at the moment for a doctorate. Well, I've finished it, I've passed my doctorate, I'm graduating, thank you, I'm graduating on the 3rd of December, so I'm really excited about that. And I think for me, um, you know, I start off by saying, what is the single biggest topic in, in my job or in my industry that I want to kind of master and get on top of. Um, and then also I want to be part of the latest conversations uh, surrounding, you know, this, this particular area or topic. So the easiest way to do that, I guess, is to kind of, you know, force yourself to go on a research journey, read as much as you can on the topic, uh, venture a thought and an opinion. I also think that, you know, in these roles that we occupy, people are interested in your perspective. They want to hear your point of view you lead a body of people. They want to know what your vision, what your thoughts are. Industry colleagues want to, you know, talk to you and understand what you think about, you know, a particular topic. So I think I read somewhere that um, Winston Churchill spent half his career preparing for impromptu speeches. So, so I think if, you know, if you're interested in sharing your perspective, you need to, you need to have respect for your audience um, and ensure that you kind of know what you're talking about. I mean, being a doctor, it's quite a big thing. I mean, it, it's huge. But I was listening to Naledi Pandor spoke at our Top and Power event last year. And she was saying for the first time, there was more black um, graduates than white for the first time. But what she also said, which was concerning her, was that a huge amount were being employed in actually the public sector and not the private sector. So the top 100 companies in South Africa weren't actually employing doctorates. They weren't leaning into that vast body of knowledge and expertise. So it's great that uh, Google's getting some of that um, or or acquiring it. I think think the sweet spot really is the intersection between a lot of industry know-how and knowledge as well as academic, you know, um, sort of qualifications. So you find a lot of people in industry don't make time to go back and study. Um, And, you know, you very easily end up, um, you know, with less and less knowledge over time. Whereas if you just focus on the academic route without practical experience, you end up just being theoretical. So I think what a lot of companies um, are a little bit concerned about is just pursuing candidates that only have a string of degrees, but not a lot of industry expertise. So yeah, so I think for me, I'm very clear that I, I always have to um, read. I always have to um, you know, um, stretch myself, push myself, even if I'm not, Kind of registering for another degree or qualification but i, I constantly have to know what's what's going on um yeah what's driving that um so you know i spent i spent many years in grahamstown at Rhodes university um you know thinking about life as one does in a small town and the purpose and you know why am i here why do i do the things that i do what makes me you know happiest and so on and i also spoke to a couple of close friends and i said listen I'm trying to work out my purpose here and help me understand um, when am I in flow, when am I, you know, at my most effective. And it boiled down to, to two or three things. It's really about 
making a difference um, in people's lives, helping people, um, you know, making the build, making the world a better place one person at a time. And I started thinking long and hard about how I can shape my career into something of a useful and purposeful um, sort of experience, you know, and, and how I judged it is, am I making a difference? So part of my attraction to a business like Google is, Google's mission very simply is to organize the world's information and make it helpful and accessible. Now how that manifests is helpful products. So, you know, I absolutely love what you can do with search, with YouTube and all these properties we have. And, and I, when I look at my own career, having spent so many years building brands, it was based on an understanding that brands have a fundamental role to play in our lives, you know, whether it's at an emotional level or a functional or physiological level. And I wanted to, to ensure that that relationship is protected, it's nourished, uh, and it's based on mutual, mutual gain and mutual trust and respect. Um, yeah, so, so I think when I, when I combine all those things, um, it, it really clarifies in my mind that I have to be in a space where I'm making a difference. For sure. And I see that even on your LinkedIn profile, it says business coach. Yeah. So uh, I, I saw that and I was like, wow, okay, what's with that? <laughs> Let me tell you what that's about. <laughs> huh? Let me tell you what that's about. So this notion of a visiting professor, uh, the official title is professor of practice. So somebody who comes from industry, but with academic qualification and also teaching experience. So I've been, I've been supporting various business schools for the last 12 years uh, as a guest lecturer, somebody who comes and speaks and that kind of thing, or, or hosting MBA students for two hours and working through stuff with them. Um, so Jobic Business School approached me and um, they've offered me this role of professor of practice. What that entails is teaching um, some executive education programs as well as supporting MBA students. Now the official title for the support we give to MBA students is business coach or MBA co business coach. So. So I will I work with three MBA students, um, yeah, just to kind of help them along. So that's that's kind of what I do on the side. That's, that's brilliant stuff. So yeah. it's funny because I, I work a lot with a, a former colleague of yours, Cleo Zwani. And you work oh, with yeah. him. Uh, he speaks very highly of you. We work with him for, on the Standard Bank Top Woman program that we do. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I know we work with Mish and... Uh, Navani with a lot of your colleagues on that program. Yeah. In fact, we spoke to, I think it was Rachel a week or two ago from the Google Cloud team in the UK to try and look at partnering the, nice. the team there. So there's a, there's a lot of crossovers. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, one of the things that we do as an organization is we do awards and we celebrate leading organizations. Um, how important do you think that sort of recognition is in South Africa to start looking and celebrating the things that we're doing in business? I think let's, let's think about the role of awards. I think, you know, what, what you want to do is you want to celebrate greatness. Um, you want to shine a spotlight on a case study that should be, um, you know, followed, um, should be, should be hailed as best in class. I think that, um, it's, it's very easy for, for people to, to kind of pursue the wrong stuff. Sometimes people pursue awards just for the same of fame, but I think fame and fortune go together. Um, I think commercial success, commercial impact of what, you know, our brands do is very, very important. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so, I mean, I think for me, it's, it's, it's just one of those things. We need to ensure that we, we paint a picture of what good looks like, what the gold standard is. Um, and explain to people why we think this, this particular case is great. Um, you know, I find that a lot of education comes from just 
judging these awards. I mean, I'm involved in financial mail ed focus awards. I'm involved in the marketing achievement awards, you know, bookmarks and so on. And and with every single judging process, you learn so much. You're like, okay, so this is why this case should be hailed as kind of best in class, you know. Um, and I think it's great for the teams working on 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 those campaigns um, to feel that um, you know their their efforts um, are actually respected and um, acknowledged. It's funny because I often think that um, South Africans don't do enough to celebrate their successes. It's almost like we're shy. <laughs> because yeah. I find yeah. we've got so many case studies of innovation and excellence in business and advertising. I mean, we've been hailed as the, one of the best, you know, advertising organisations in the world. Yeah. Um, so I think what's actually missing is failure awards because we all we all kind of know and it's become trite that um, you need to learn and fail fast and and it's in failure that we learn the best lessons but somehow as human beings we tend to gravitate towards uh, you know celebrating success as opposed to celebrating lessons learned from failure so I think what would be an interesting innovation going forward is to to have the kind of the failure awards you know from <laughs> The most epic fail. <laughs> I'm sure Google does something like that. They talk about their failures. I'm sure. I'm sure they do something like that. <laughs> yeah. On a on a weekly basis. Um, yeah. Now I think you're so right. And I mean, I know that Google's doing a lot in terms of helping businesses get through their failures, especially small and medium sized businesses through COVID. And you're doing a hell of a lot. And I want to go into that. But I mean. One of the things I realized is that the application, the opportunities from digital marketing, e-commerce for organizations in South Africa is massive, but it requires, because of the amount of tools, it requires an enormous amount of research, testing and failing. Um, And so what I see is I see internationally, like if I look at Australia, if I look at the UK, certainly America, I see people really embracing it and starting to win at it. But it's not a quick win. It looks like it's you've got to keep at it. You've got to keep on knowing you're going to fail a lot. Yeah. Part of your your thing. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, 2020 has been a, a, a very challenging year for every single business out there, you know, whether at an individual level or small business or large business, even government. So we, we've partnered with, with government in the, at least in the first half of the year to kind of help with, you know, um, um, ensuring that we use our platforms to disseminate verified and credible information to help people cope, um, you know, with, with COVID-19, but also helping um, people work from home. Because if everybody is working remotely, schooling remotely, teaching remotely, selling remotely even, you know, they need to be equipped with digital tools and resources and platforms. So we've used our, our technology this year to help people, you know, sort of pivot to this new way of doing things, whether it's through Google Classrooms or Google Education, teaching, you know, uh, teachers to use Google tools so they can teach remotely and, and so on. So that's been kind of the first half of the year. And in the last uh, two, three months or so, we've been, we've been seized with this challenge of economic recovery. Um, Small business builds economies. Small business is a big, big employer of people. I think 48% of our workforce is employed by small business. So, and small business was hardest hit by the pandemic. And by that, I mean, small businesses typically don't have resources to take on the knocks. You know, large corporates, yes, they've all been challenged, but uh, have resources, have IT departments, have chief digital officers, have digital teams that can help make sense of the opportunities of the internet. A lot of small businesses, typically are run by a founder and are very much 
handicapped by the skill set of the founder. And if the founder doesn't have deep digital skills, you know, um, it's quite limiting. So we've seen that opportunity and we've done tons of research because we've been helping small business for, for quite a few years now. And three predominant needs come up. One is access to capital and funding. The next one is access to tools and resources. The third need is access to markets or, or, or you know, customers. So we started off by um, look, focusing on skills development. So we launched um, a sort of a digital hub, which is where small businesses can go and access digital skills. Coupled with that is um, helping um, job seekers get into entry level IT jobs. So with training certificates from three, six to 12 months, partnered with the likes of Coursera on google.org, there's also a whole host of training products. So people can go and access these, these training um, tools for free um, and really be equipped to take advantage of these opportunities. So that's kind of the first thing, this, this digital hub. And then we also realize that a lot of small businesses don't have a digital presence. They just physical stores or people, you know, selling stuff from home, whether it's dressmaking, fashion industry, or making food and that kind of thing. And we realized that by just helping them get a website, we will be turning their fortunes around. So, so creating business profiles for small business on the internet um, has been a huge success for us. We've had a lot of take up um, from a lot of people who came and said, listen, we'd love help with getting a website. So we, we help them develop that or we give them the tools and they do it themselves in a matter of hours. Um, and then once you've got a website, you need to advertise yourself so that you can drive traffic to the website. So we help them with search engine optimization, search engine marketing, but we've also started gathering um, insights from the reviews that are left by happy customers and, and, and you know, stuff on, on, on all these websites to create advertising material for these businesses. So with machine learning, we can take all those comments and the reviews and create social media posts for you, posters you can hang up in your physical store, you know, banners and that kind of thing, which, which is quite nifty. Um, and then once, so once you've got an online presence and you're generating traffic towards your website and business is growing, the next preoccupation is, well, I want to sell internationally. I want to go offshore. I want to reach other markets because that's the only way to scale. Mm. That's why we launched Market Finder. Market Finder just simply helps small businesses scale and, uh, you know, um, enter new geographies. And our role there is to help with um, insights on consumer trends, consumer needs, um, you know, distribution, logistics support, linking with different partners. So it's kind of a whole ecosystem look. Um, and we're hoping that this will slowly change the fortunes of um, small business. For sure. I did a, I did a podcast with the founders of um, Get Smarter. And they were talking about their growth and how they went to Harvard and MIT. But they were saying one of the opportunities from them was that they were worried about Coursera and those sorts of organizations, but they found that only about 4% of people finished the courses because they found if it was for free, people wouldn't necessarily finish, but they found when they invested with them, they found they had like a 95 or 96%. Is that one of the challenges with some of this information disseminating it? Is that people aren't putting the same value, even though it's like high quality stuff, it's just because they're not investing in themselves and not putting that money up front so that it's not the same commitment. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think for a lot of small businesses, there's a limitation of resources, be it time, i.e. Yeah. I'm a one band, I'm running a business, I energy. don't have a lot of time, energy, I don't have a lot of time to sit and, you know, <laughs> do the course and stuff like that. <laughs> but if you're playing the long game, you'll realize that you have to invest in those skills. And I think... Yeah when people see the, the fruits of having an online presence and all of a sudden doubling or trebling, you know, queries and sales, they realize actually there's some sort of magic to 
constantly sharpening your skills and retooling. But I think for a lot of people, it's intimidating. And uh, even, even us who work in big corporates, the idea of studying and working and parenting and you know, doing all of those things at the same time um, is, is quite daunting. So yes, there are, there are some challenges, but I think we, we can't stop harping on about it. We need to carry on uh, you know, um, speaking about and encouraging people to, to digitalize their businesses, to acquire digital skills. You know, fourth mm-hmm. industrial revolution is here to stay. And, um, and if you're not equipped for it, you'll miss out on huge opportunities. So we're yeah. constantly appealing to small business to just say, listen, invest in your business, invest in yourself. It will pay off in the end. So one of the things, I, a, a new trend that I sort of saw, and I don't know if you're seeing it yourself, but uh, you know, I spoke to this, the CEO of Yappy Chef, and then I spoke to the CEO and founder of Batu Shoes, and both said they did. They started off in a digital, and then they went to the retail. I mean, Batu Shoes has just opened its 15th store under lockdown. Um, Theo, I mean, he's done phenomenally well. And, and he said, Ralph, people don't understand, for two years, I had a, just a digital business that I uh, that I moved cars out of my the boot of my car, um, yeah. where he used digital to drive the sort of adoption and 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 basically that failure because it was at low yeah. cost, and then he worked into the retail. Do you see that trend happening more and more Absolutely. with So so we're not losing the retail necessarily, but it's been more yeah. checked and verified on the digital platforms, and then people go. Absolutely. I mean, we're seeing a lot of evolutions of business models. You know, we're seeing some some businesses are lead generation businesses where everything is done online and then people phone you and, you know, um, get hold of the details and sell to you. We're also seeing a lot of um, symbiotic, um, you know, interactions between online and offline. So like a very common trend now in retail is um, Ropo, which is research online purchase you know, offline. So a lot of people will do their research and when they walk into the store, they want to grab, you know, whatever it is they spend hours researching and get, especially now with lockdown, with people having kind of this um, FOGO, which is fear of going out. We're finding that a lot of people want to minimize the time they spend in a physical store. Um, So they'll do all the research online and when they walk into the store, they know exactly what phone they're buying, the features of the phone. There's no need to speak to an in-store promoter. Um, You know, people are just worried about um, increased dwell time in store because of you know um, health health issues. So so it's definitely happening, and I think a lot of people are realizing that there are still infrastructure challenges in terms of data costs, in terms of internet connectivity, which is why we 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 have invested in the undersea cable to help you know uh, boost uh, internet con- uh, you know con- connectivity. We work with our partners in the broader industry to see if you know prices of devices can come down. We're hearing that um, there's going to be a uh, spectrum um, auction next year. Uh, so hopefully 5G becomes a reality, data costs start to come down. I think all those things will actually help uh, broaden, you know, the, the, the base of the people that are accessing internet opportunities. But yeah, we're definitely seeing an interaction between online and offline. Yeah, I suppose we did the future of HR a couple of months ago. And one of the things that we saw, and certainly we, we've got Africa Tech Week at the end of the month, but one of the things that we're seeing is, is that tech works. <laughs> yeah. It's the humanization of tech. It's how do you have a culture of innovation where people within the organization adapt to tech? I mean, we started up with Google, which must have been 10 years ago now. Um, and this, everybody was like on Microsoft and, and the transition yeah. took a while for people to transition. Now it's like, no, they, they just want to use Google. So once they get something ingrained, 
Yeah. Do you see that one of the big challenges at the moment for, for how do we create these cultures? How do we create these ecosystems? Because it seems like the, the, there's more technology, there's, there's more tools, and so therefore yeah. there's lots of things that can automate and help, but it does take yeah. a level of learning and... I think, I, th I think you know, every, every organization has to dedicate a big chunk of time into creating an innovation culture. You know, and innovation, we know, can be expedited and scaled uh, through the help of technology. So there is this big fear around technology because a lot of people think the relationship between men and machines is binary, and it's not. It's supposed to be symbiotic. Machines exist because of men. Machines are programmed by men. You know, mm -hmm. machines help men become much more effective. Yes, some jobs might be replaced by machines, but the business grows, and if the business grows, new departments are created, you know, more jobs are created and more people are absorbed into the organization. So I really don't think that the, the kind of the pervasiveness of tech should be seen as a threat to, to jobs, because I really think that machines will always need people, you know, and people innovate and they think and they come up with ideas and, um, and human beings are creative, are, are very, very creative. You know, we're born with a creative gene and, and our creativity informs technology. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we, we look at the disruption of, of every single industry. The marketing industry is no exception. Marketing has been disrupted, um, and largely because of cell phones. Um, you know, consumers are now consuming so much content. It's a, you know, it's a click away. They spend a lot of time on their phones. They're not sitting at home, you know, waiting for linear TV. So, so basically that has changed the entire comms model because the original communication model was sender, receiver, and message in the middle, but now anybody can come up with content. Anybody can create content. Consumers create their own content now. There are so many receivers, and because of this uh, preponderance of content, because of this clutter, the single biggest enemy now is clutter. So, so to cut through the clutter, the content has to be relevant, you know, um, and has to be personalized. So technology allows us to personalize what we do. Technology allows us to gather data and data shouldn't be intimidating if you've got the help of technology to help make sense, to analyze the data and use it to, to actually personalize your, your you know, sort of initiative. So, yeah, I think once people start to experience the benefits of technology, the fear dissipates, uh, but there's also the, the cost of technology. So hopefully that continues to come down over time, but a lot of businesses will shy away from digital transformation efforts because they believe that it's a huge cost but I think um, an even bigger cost is doing nothing. For sure. No, I mean, you've spoken about so many things. One of the things I want to, to pick up, though, is that in this, in this new advertising world, marketing world, ha has the copywriter become the most important person in an organization? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to single out one particular role. I mean, I think if we say that all advertising starts with a potent insight, right? Yeah. Um, now the question finding is problem. finding the problem. Now the question is um, who has responsibility for coming up with this insight, for this deep penetrating consumer understanding? Is it account management? Is it strategy? Is it creative? Um, or do you want to create a culture where consumer understanding is just like? brilliant basics everybody in the organization mm. uh, champions the consumer because we are all consumers you know so i think for me um it, it it really depends on your creative philosophy if your creative philosophy is it's all about the creative work 
then perhaps you might say the copywriter is the most important person. Yeah. But if your creative philosophy is, it's all about value creation. So I'm more in the value creation camp because mm. we've got to think about all our stakeholders. Yeah, you know, we're creating value for everybody. And value creation is the tide that lifts all boats. It mm. gets you better creatives. It gets you better tools, better technology. All those things aid the creative product. But if we doggedly pursue just creativity without thinking about value creation, you will very soon be, be bankrupt. You know, you'll have a lot of great creatives, a lot of great ideas, but you, know, you won't have a business. You don't so, know if it's a, a painkiller or a vitamin tablet. And, and, absolutely. And absolutely. people have Yeah. And I also think there's, a, there's, there's also a danger of uh, being a solution that goes looking for a problem. You know, you have yeah. to be a solution yeah. that, that speaks to an existing problem uh, or an unmet need, even if the need isn't really expressed. But if you've identified something that people will find really, really interesting and attractive, you're onto something. For sure. And I mean, yeah. the advertising industry as a whole for you, I mean, there was a time where media companies were sort of coming, condensing. We saw big corporates building their own teams. It seems that that shift is going back again now. Are you seeing that at all? Are you seeing the power yeah, so of the companies? It's definitely happening. So I'll tell you, I'll tell you the, the major forces uh, that are being brought to bear on the creative industry. Um, insourcing is one of them. So yeah. clients are building their own creative um, talent and building their own internal studios, um, you know, for a number of reasons. First of all, social media, when social media and social marketing uh, was first invented, it was completely outsourced to agencies. But sometimes a crisis happens in the middle of the night and there isn't time to reach out to your agency and brief the agency. So some clients have decided, actually, I'd rather just take social media marketing in-house and just deal with these things myself. Somewhat uh, true also of PR, some clients have decided to do their own crisis management and reputation management. And then the next frontier was um, advertising because I think what a lot of clients are facing is... Um, top line pressure, revenue pressure. So if you're not mm -hmm. really growing um, ahead of the market, you know, you're losing market share. And if marketing spend is a, is a percentage of your top line, when top line shrinks, marketing spend shrinks. When marketing spend shrinks, clients look at that and say, actually, I want to make sure that I spend the majority of my marketing budget on consumer facing activities as opposed to paying suppliers. So, so now there's pressure on agency fees and agency remuneration because clients are saying, actually, I want to reduce that. I want to squeeze agency margins so that I can spend most of my resources, you know, uh, speaking to clients directly. So if you follow that, that thinking to its logical conclusion, you might end up in insourcing because uh, mm -hmm. then you believe that maybe this thing will be cheaper if I do it in-house. Now that's got pros and cons. Yes, it gives you more control as a client. Um, you know, you, you literally like sitting around a desk and, you know, briefing each other, working out ideas and coming up with creative solutions that could work. But then there's also a school of thought that says, leave that to the experts, you know, leave it to the creative experts, people that are only seized with great creative ideas that deliver magic and deliver commercial results, as opposed to people that, because remember, advertising is probably about 10 or 15% of a marketing, um, you know, uh, job spec. There's so much more that, that marketers do in their day that's outside advertising. There's research, yeah. there's promotions, there's pricing, there's brand development, there's product innovation, there's packaging innovation, and, 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 and advertising is but one of those. So some people are saying advertising is too important to be, uh, to be given to marketers because they've got so many other things. 
So it really depends how you see, but I think for me, which is why I harp on about value creation, if we focus on driving top line growth, then there's enough money, there's enough resources to get best in, best in class, um, you know, support on your brand. Um, so yeah, there's definitely insourcing happening. There's also um, sort of adjacent industries that are now getting into creative development. Some production houses are now making content. Um, some clients have their own content studios in-house. You know, uh, consulting firms have now grown into digital media, digital advertising, you know, providing solutions there. So there, there, is, there is quite a bit of pressure. And then there's also mm -hmm. consumers that are constantly innovating and coming up with their own content. We see it on YouTube all the time. And sometimes brands latch onto that and, you know, uh, kind of leverage already existing um, creativity out there. So there's definitely different models. But I think that the advertising industry is here to stay, it's got a significant role to play. It's just about making sure that you retool to be relevant in the digital age. Uh, look, my, my sense is that the experts have probably got a playbook uh, or a process that they know they've been trained uh, to do this. And so their chances of success is far greater because they have that process built in where possibly if you internalize it, you might get lucky. It's a bit like the lottery or whatever. And, but unless you stop building processes in place, checklists, you know, you are just guessing otherwise, if you're not measuring properly. And I think that's what, you know, when you using an agency, there's a, there's a metric that you're constantly reviewing. If you're doing it internally, you're less likely to be as honest with your metrics. Yeah. Um, so I think it does help <laughs> you and looking outward is good. Yeah, and I think I've got the same attitude towards project management. Some people think project management is, is something you can do as a sideshow. Uh, and I believe that there's experts out there. You know, there's people that are trained in project management who might not come from the creative industry. They might come from construction or engineering, but they bring deep smarts uh, to the table that could turn the operations of an agency around. So, so I think, yeah, we have to have respect for these disciplines and find the best people. Um, even if you end up creating a PMO within an organization, but it must be stuffed by the right uh, level of competence, you know, uh, even things like kind of managing finances of an, uh, you know, sort of an organization, it mustn't just be um, a small little support function, um, you know, that you only intact with once a month, you know, when you go through billings, it must be part of how you do business. Um, and I also like, creating a culture of commercial accountability where people are conscious of the time they're investing in their work, you know, how, what, what, what destroys value, uh, you know, and, um, and if you're going to be um, pursuing like awards and stuff, thinking, you know, long and hard about the impact of those awards and how that value comes back into the business and how we use the success in the awards show to generate more growth, to get best talent out there, you know, to deepen our client relationships. So all those things matter to me, but we've got to be speaking this value language because that's what shareholders are looking for. You know, when you present to the board, they want to know how is this business growing? How is the health of the business? It's not just about, let's see how, how, how you're doing on the creative rankings, you know? That's important, but there's other metrics also. I like, I like your thing about the value adding. I mean, one of the things I wanted to talk to you a little bit about was, you know, um, I'm not sure how long it took you to get to land the job or, or, or how, in fact, you know, you got the job. But it's, you know, highly known that Google is a great place to work. And it's quite a process to even, you know, get through the interview process and to get a role there. But, but what are you looking for in candidates? 
Um, what are you looking for? One of the things I've learned is that, you know, yeah. um, success is not a one man band. It's from a team. Yeah. And so um, I'd be interested to know what, what you look for in yeah. people around you to build your team. Um, so, yeah, some raw things. I, I, I look for your entire life story. You know, uh, my CV starts from, I don't know, the age of four or five when I was exposed to my family business and the fact that I spent school holidays working in the family business. You know, I, I didn't have time to, to, to build Lego sets, as important as that is for child's development. But I grew up acquiring business skills. And I think that's quite important. And, and then I got to boarding school and, uh, and there was a little bit of initiation. I think some seniors wanted me to, you know, wash their sneakers and stuff. So I turned it into a business. I said, fine. This one sounds good. Next time around, I'm going to charge. So then I started, you know, charging people for watching their sneakers. That's a little business. And then, um, you know, when I got to my senior years in high school, uh, we were all crazy about MC Hammer at the time. And he had these famous diaper pants. So we started making them. Uh, one of my friends um, had an old sewing machine that his mom gave him and he knew how to, you know, sew. So we went and bought material and we started making these MC Hammer pants and we sold them. That's like a little fashion business in boarding school. When I got to Varsity, um, we realized that um, there was a need for like an events company. Um, so we, me and a few friends just started a little events thing where we just started, you know, throwing parties and hiring venues and, you know, so stuff like that builds your business acumen, builds your kind of commercial muscles, leadership, working as part of a team, you know, understanding basic skills. Um, you know, and um, when when I took a kind of a year's uh, break from um, full-time employment, I started a little business. I'm a big photographer. I do a lot of landscape and wildlife photography. I started a little business where I was making greeting cards and T-shirts and canvas and paper prints using my own photography. Um, so so when I when I present myself at interviews, I speak about that entire journey. You know, the the informal kind of learning the entrepreneurship and how I apply that to formal workplace. And because I'm driven by a need to, to kind of help people and make a difference and, you know, and, and just make the world a better place, I'm able to link that purpose to some of the roles I've chosen and some of the campaigns, initiatives I've been part of. And that starts to paint a story of a balanced individual who is driven to make an impact, who cares about making a difference, who understands how to make money, who understands how to lead because people care more about knowing that you care as opposed to how much you know. So, so when, I, when, I, when, I, when I interview candidates, I look for, um, you know, depending on what, what the role requires, I look for kind of sort of a balanced individual, um, you know, who, who, ha who has quite a, quite a few interesting parts of their life. So I always encourage people, don't be shy about uh, you know, productizing your life experiences, you know, find a way of, of turning them into useful anecdotes and stories and case studies, uh, because that's, that's the evidence you have, you know, um, we're not looking for theoretical and imaginary responses to business challenges. You've got to think about real life stuff and, you know, demonstrable ability to problem solve comes from living life and being able to, to record and codify some of the lessons you've learned along the way. I mean, it seems also listening to you because I think there's a, that big focus on education and learning and academics, but certainly the entrepreneurial side of you is is a little bit maybe less talked about possibly or, or but it seems that your success 
has certainly, you know, understanding how to create value for shareholders, for customers and for your team is certainly that entrepreneur side is definitely something that is, is underpinning that knowledge. Um, and, and you're able to use that knowledge to then extract value for all sorts of stakeholders. Um, how, how important do you think entrepreneurship is for big organizations and recruiting people with entrepreneurial experience? You know, my definition of entrepreneurship is uh, run this business like it were your own. You know, um, now what that does is it, lo it localizes sense of ownership and accountability in the individual. Um, you know, so if you are at an intersection, turning left is value destruction, turning right is value creation. Always go right. And, and, and you need to have skin in the game. You need to feel like, actually, I'm shaping something here. You know, um, this organization has given me an opportunity to run a business and to write an incredible case study. Uh, you know, littered with successes and failures and in peaks and troughs. Uh, but you've got to see that as your own business, your own empire, your own innovation, your own contribution to the world. And if you want to contribute some of those learnings to, to kind of um, learning, then you go and study something and you contribute to the body of knowledge, you know. So, which is why I like visiting business schools, giving talks and stuff and, and sharing some of the stuff I learn in practice. And then I also, you know, learn from them by joining communities and conversations on, on very, very important topics that we in industry need to be aware of. So, so that juxtaposition that, you know, kind of... We're going to invite you. We're going to yeah. invite you to Africa Tech Week to speak because I know Mish normally speaks there as well. We're going to invite you. It's the end of the month. Um, we're going to take you up on that offer. I know that you've got another meeting now, so I don't want to be rude yeah. with your time and I know how important those things are. I just want to thank you so much. There's so many more questions I have about technology in Africa and devices and, oh, oh there's so much. So I'm going to you know, I'll leave it here for now. Cool. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Look forward to speaking to you again on another podcast or Africa Tech Week or whatever. And, and wishing you all the very best of luck with Google. And, and thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ralph. Thanks for the opportunity. It was lovely chatting to you.